Today's gospel reading is from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, 
I who speak to you am he. This is the gospel of the Lord. Good morning. I didn't get my mic thing. I'm going to use this if that's okay, Dave. I didn't get this on though, so I'm going to awkwardly talk to you while um, I put this on. Uh, Good morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to John 4, if you haven't already done that, I'm going to annoy you um, into doing that this morning, Um, and I will wear you down, so just go ahead and do that if you would. Man, did I do that right this time? Great. Awesome. So we're in John 4. Um, This is a very familiar story, probably to most of you, I bet. Um, I've always been super intrigued by this conversation. Um, this morning, I'm, I'm going to talk about shame. I think there's a, there is a danger here of me over-psychologizing, I guess, this text and reading into it things that aren't there, but um, I, I will show my work this morning. Ultimately, I'm, I'm hoping to show that with the context and the, the twists and the turns of this conversation that this is a woman Jesus is talking to that is drowning in a well of shame. Shame, I think, is one of the sharpest. It's one of the strongest human emotions. We understand this as kids, even. Sometimes I think we have a nostalgia about childhood as if it was a very shame-free existence, but if you have kids or spend time with kids or you remember your own childhood enough, I I think um, you'll know that Children experience sharp shame. They experience a, a, a high level of shame. One of my earliest memories, I just remembered this as I was, I think I was thinking about a youth group lesson last week, and I, I remember this. One of my only memories from my first two years of elementary school was when I, we were coloring or whatever, as one does in elementary school, and I had accidentally thrown away one of the crayons with the papers that I was throwing away. And I told the teacher that, hey, I accidentally threw away a crayon, and the teacher made me dig out of the trash in front of the class to find the crayon. And I remember that shame that I felt as a little kid. And, you know, one one of my first thoughts in remembering this was, man, that teacher was kind of mean. But the second thought was, wow, shame is so strong that that's one of my only memories. And, you know, I, I know that can sound kind of trite, but if you layer all of your experiences like that up with years and years of sin and failure and broken relationships, and shame can become so strong within you, it can exist so deeply within you that I, I think it can grow to the point where it's, it can possibly even affect your decisions and your thinking without even realizing it and create deep walls of shame within yourself. Everybody recognizes to some degree the power of shame and that it's such a deep and unsettling thing. And there's a ton of ways that our world, when we leave the biblical story, there's a ton of ways that we try to get rid of it. One of those is that we simply act as if shame itself is the only issue. The feeling of shame is the only issue with shame. The the poet W.H. Auden caught on to this treatment of shame um, even in the 1940s, um, saying that the remedy of shame is this. Come on, my good man. No wonder you're feeling guilty. You have a distorting mirror. And that is indeed a very wicked thing to have. But cheer up for a trifling consideration. I shall be delighted to straighten it out for you. There, look, 
a perfect image. What a wonderful thing to have. The evil of distortion is exercised. Now you have nothing to repent of any longer. Now you are one of the illumined and elect. That will be $10,000, please. In other words, your shame is just the result of you thinking you broke some moral rule or code or cultural norm. And if you just get rid of those, then you're fine, right? Don't worry about those. You'll be fine. No law means no guilt and no shame. In our world of cynicism, one of the best superpowers we can have today is shamelessness. So if you can't be shamed, you can do whatever you want. This has been one of the biggest emphasis, emphases of the sexual revolution in, in response to a lot of the um, admittedly overly shaming, shame-based sexual ethics that the church has preached sometimes with um, too harsh of a wagging finger or in the wrong ways. The sexual revolution says if there's no law, there's no shame. Our world tries to deal with shame by saying that there's, there's no real basis for it, or we can just change some of these things, and then you'll be okay. If you take your shame to YouTube or Facebook or TikTok or whatever you're on, or, or any friend or psychologist that isn't operating out of a biblical framework, it's a good chance that that's what you're going to get. That's where they're going to turn you with your shame. Oh, it's okay. And how's that going? We live in a shame-free society yet? You guys don't struggle with shame at all? I was reading an article in the Scientific American, which I totally always do, and I just wasn't Googling stuff to um, prep for the sermon, but it was, it was by um, a professor of psychology at Heidelberg University in, in Germany um, named Annette Kammerer, and she was overviewing all of the psychological effects of shame and how it appears neurologically and how it relates to anxiety and depression and anxiety, yeah, all that, and smack dab in the middle of our, the article, and I was not expecting this, was a section titled, Haunted by Original Sin. She talked about shame from Genesis 1 and said, this biblical interpretation of nakedness is shameful, she's talking about Adam and Eve, right, still deeply informs the social norms and conventions that determine how we deal with human physicality and sexuality. Although our notions of whether, how, where, and in the presence of whom a person might be undressed have changed over the centuries, the shame that we feel when we transgress the norms has remained. So in other words, we've changed the norms. We've, we've changed the laws. We've changed the rules. In an effort to try to get rid of the shame... In an effort to get rid of everything that we see is causing shame, and yet, like a ghost, it's still there. We're haunted by it, as deep and as devastating as ever. The Abbott Brothers wrote a pretty popular song, came out a few years ago, about shame, where they talked about the aftermath of broken relationships, and the chorus is this. I'm not going to sing it for you because I love you. Shame, boatloads of shame. Day after day, more of the same. Blame. Please lift it off. Please take it off. Please make it stop. And at one level or another, I think that we sing that chorus to ourselves a lot as well. Who do we take our shame to? Who can lift it off, take it off? We're going to look at this conversation that Jesus has for answers to that. And I'm going to talk about this in three parts. The woman's shame, Jesus' shame, and your shame. The woman's shame, Jesus' shame, your shame. 
And I, I think at this point, before I go forward, it's going to be helpful to actually define what shame is because it is kind of, you know, people use that in different ways. Here, here's what I'm going to say. This is actually a bad definition because it's more of a metaphor. But shame is the residue of sin on the heart. Shame is the residue of sin on the heart. So you know when you like remove a sticker that was maybe there for a while or whatever and it, it leaves a gooey residue that's, that's just hard to remove. We have one of those. Somebody stuck a, I mean our house is from 1895. This sticker looks like it had been there since then. It's, it's on Kuiper's window on the second floor and we just can't get it off. The goo is too strong and um, whether it's sin done by us or to us, it leaves a residue on the heart, the aftermath, the heart aftermath of sin. That's what shame is. So first, let's talk about the woman's shame. Let's, let's look at the woman's shame. If you want to look at John 4 with me. So Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee. It's quite a long walk, and it says he had to pass through Samaria. So there, there's some important background information here about the Samaritans, and I'm, I'm probably going to run the risk of oversimplifying this a little bit, but the Samaritans were descendants of people from the northern kingdom um, in the Old Testament. So if you'll remember, if you read this before, Solomon's sons ended up breaking up the kingdom of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. The, the south was a little messed up, the north was really messed up. Um, they, they gave into a lot of pagan cultural practices of nations around them, and God ended up judging them by sending Assyria to take them over. And so Assyria exiled a lot of the Jews from that land, and the ones that remained intermarried with some of the Assyrians, and that's where the Samaritans came from. And they took on some of their pagan worship practices. So when the Jews from the other kingdom, from the north and southern kingdoms were allowed to return. They saw these Samaritans and they became, um, they, they, they saw the Samaritans as these people who were impure religious backsliders, people who may have been friends with their enemies. So the Samaritans said, okay then, we'll just worship with our own Bible. We'll make our own Bible. They didn't, um, they didn't uh, see any of the other scriptures after um, the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, they didn't take any of those scriptures to be the word of God, um, inspired word of God, and they also edited the Pentateuch a little bit to fit them. Um, the Jews uh, that were coming back um, made the second temple in Jerusalem, and they, they said, okay, we're going to make our own temple over here on this mountain. So the Jews looked down on them, and they, they shamed the impure Samaritans, and the Samaritans um, left a lot of uh, what was known as faithfulness to the word of God, and they um, set their own temple up, and they didn't like the Jews either. In verse 4, John says that Jesus had to pass through, Samaritan, through Samaria. And that's, that is geographically accurate. That's, where, um, that, that's how, how they would get there. Um, going around uh, didn't make much sense. It would have been really long. Um, but, you know, it might have been a thing where when they were traveling, maybe they walked a little bit faster through Samaria, or they looked a little bit meaner, or they hawked a loogie when they passed through, but they did, they passed through it. And almost every time John uses this word that we see translated as had to, he had to, or sometimes it's translated it is necessary, it has to do, in the book of John, with Jesus' primary mission, what he is here to do. So we see this word come up when Jesus say things like he has to die, he has to rise from the dead. So right here we should already be clued in 
That this is no accident. This has to do with Jesus' whole purpose in coming. But the central dividing question between the Jews and the Samaritans was this. How do we get close to God? How do we get close to God? The Jew says, look at the law, the history, the prophets, and the worship in the temple in Jerusalem. That's how you get close to God. The Samaritan says, well, just look at the law and worship in the temple at Gerizim. How do we get close to God? So this Samaritan woman comes. Jesus is already there. The Samaritan woman comes alone to Jacob's well at about noon, which is weird. This is the time of day. Um, This is not the time of day when women normally came. This is the time of day when it's getting really hot. You know, the sun's over your head, burning up. And we see from other texts that normally women traveled in groups in the mornings or evenings when it was cooler. It's when they came to the well. So she's coming alone, and she's coming alone at a time of day when she can be pretty sure that she won't have to run into other groups of women. Jesus, who does not have a rope or a bucket, asks her for a drink, and this whole conversation ensues of Jesus using imagery to tease a little bit of what he's come to do. We've seen him do this before. He says he's coming to give living water. And of course, this is weird and confusing, which Jesus is very okay with being weird and confusing. And he dives a little bit deeper in each of her responses. And I'm going to come back to the living water and what that means later. But he describes this living water that fully and forever satisfies. You don't have to keep coming back to the well. It fully and forever satisfies. And the woman says in verse 15, but, you know, I mean, Jesus like goes through this. There's a few iterations of this. And then she finally says, okay, I want it. I want the living water. I want it bubbling up within me. I want the water. And if I'm like, if this is like an evangelism course, I'm, I don't know if you can fail evangelism courses. Jesus might fail this, right? I've, I've, I've been in a couple of these for like campus ministry and international student ministry where they teach you how to have these conversations, you know, in ways that will be helpful to the other person. You can share the gospel. And if someone were to say, hey, I want this living water, the teaching would usually be, okay, that's when you're supposed to truth vomit on them. Give them everything. Instead, you know, instead of, okay, let me start. Jesus says, go call your husband. Go call your husband and come here. And then the woman answered, I have no husband. So this is her shortest reply. This is a curt, brisk reply. It's by far the shortest reply that she gives to Jesus in this conversation. And in every other piece of the conversation she's had so far, she's ended with either a request or a question of Jesus that's meant to keep the conversation going. I want to keep talking about this, Jesus. Here's a question. Here's a request. But here, it's short, and it doesn't include any of that. She doesn't want to talk about it. But instead of leaving the, the subject, Jesus digs deeper, says, you're right. You're right. You, you have no husband. You've had five. And the one that you're with now, the guy that you're with now, you're not married to. What you've said is true. And in doing that, Jesus exposed her shame. Now I'm going to camp out for a second here because there's a few different ways of seeing this woman. So on the one side, this is how the church has typically treated this woman. She's seen as a sinner. In fact, if you have an ESV study Bible, it just calls her um, the immoral woman, I think. See her as a sinner. However, um, you know, because she's, for pretty obvious reasons, right, she's cohabiting with a man, she's had all these husbands, she's a sinner on this side. 
However, there's a modern rereading of this woman that takes into account the cultural baggage of how women were treated. So speaking very generally here, men had the money and the power. It's possible that some of these marriages ended in the death of her husbands, that they weren't, you know, any adultery, but could be just the husband died. But even if most or all of them were divorced, divorce was also something that was entirely up, almost entirely up to the prerogative of the husband. And we can read her sleeping with a man she wasn't married to with the lens of the sexual revolution. We could say, oh, well, she's doing this out of her freedom for her own pleasure. But she would have had, in that day, to do that meant she had no claim over the house. That meant she was as vulnerable as she ever was. That means that she probably went to that well thinking, man, if he, if he leaves me, I have nothing. And there's nothing to stop that. So, what's the issue here? Is she a sinner or is she sinned against? Is she immoral or is she broken? And I, I don't know the details here. We don't know the answers to those questions. The Bible doesn't give us that. What I do know is me. And I do know a little bit, I I know a little bit about me, and I know a little bit about human nature, and I can say for myself, I'm a sinner and I'm sinned against. That's the human story. We are, we're broken and we're sinful. We're breakers of rules and we're also broken. And I think it's safe to say that probably this was a both and. Her shame was the residue of sin, her sin and sin against her. The residue of sin on her heart. And knowing that, looking back at verse 15, reads differently, doesn't it? Give me the water. I don't want to thirst anymore. I don't want to come here anymore, Jesus. I don't want to make this walk of shame to the well at noon every day so that the groups of women who know bits and pieces of my story and my shame can shame me even more. I'll do anything not to have to come to this well alone every day anymore. And she too is singing with the Abbott brothers, shame, boatloads of shame, day after day, more of the same, blame, please lift it off, please take it off, please make it stop. And Jesus digs in. He exposes her shame, which is a different thing than shaming. Jesus is not shaming her. Look at how affirmative, he says, you're right, you're right, what you said is true. But he digs in, he digs in farther. And and immediately when he exposes this, what does she do? Oh, sir, you must be a prophet. What about the mountains? What about the mountains? I had a friend who was in a small group at his church, and and the small group loved to loudly argue about theology and um, things they disagreed with. And most of the conversation centered around how liberals are wrong. Let's let's talk about all these controversial issues and and how we're right about these. And one day in that small group, my friend and his wife shared about his addiction to lust and sex and the shame that exposed in them and what recovery looked like for them. And that was, that, that story, that long story, painful shame was returned with silence, dead silence. And all of a sudden... It, it occurred to him that all of the loudness about the disagreeable issues and how the other side was wrong started to look a lot like distraction from dealing with deep wounds and deep shame. You've had five husbands and you aren't married to the guy you're with now. Oh, look at the mountains, Jesus. 
Which one should I go to? That was the woman's shame. Just talked about the woman's shame. Now I want to break there and talk about Jesus' shame. Because Jesus actually, after this point, he never mentions her broken relationships, her sinful relationships, or um, anything about those again. He goes somewhere else to address her shame. Look how this passage opens. It opens with Jesus completely gassed and thirsty and in need of water after a really long journey, long time of walking. I went for a run at Queenie Park a few days ago after doing um, sermon prep at the seminary the other day, and apparently they just decided to steal all of the hills that were in St. Louis and just stick them all in this one park. And you know, after, so after the run, I was like not used to that. I was gasping for breath. And, and some people can look beautiful while they're gasping for breath. Like they can look beautiful when they're like, you know, just completely tired and worn down. I'm not one of those people. I remember after a race one time, someone came up to me and they were like, why does your face look like that? And I, I think a lot of times when we think about Jesus... We, we don't, you know, when we look at pictures of Jesus, they, I mean, we, of course we have the ones of him crucified, but besides that, Jesus is glowing and he's talking and he's chill and this is Jesus, <sighs> sweaty, tired, thirsty after walking in the desert. Jesus never sinned, but he knew the shame and the brokenness of what it means to be in a, in a human body that gets tired and sick and sweaty Jesus didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he was like us in our experience of the residue of sin. Even though, even though he'd never sinned, he experienced the residue of sin in our brokenness, in our pain. He experienced pain and shame. We can see that most fully in his suffering and crucifixion. Isaiah 53 told us that he'd be despised and rejected by men. We see him, the eternal son of God, second person of the Trinity, Spit on and stripped, made fun of and shamed with a crown of thorns. Hebrews 12 tells us that he endured the cross, despising the shame on the cross and being sinned against. Jesus bore our shame from our brokenness. And on that cross, though Jesus never sinned, he bore the sin and the shame of our sin, fully bearing, fully taking that just and righteous anger of God for the shameful sins that we committed. Going back to Isaiah 53, it says, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Why did he do that? To answer this question that's in the background of this conversation. How do we get close to God? How do we get close to God? Jesus says, look at me. I've got what you need. You've got this well of shame that you come to by yourself every day, but he very intentionally says, I have living water. So living water, that word, that would have been taken to mean like spring water. So he's, he's saying that to set it apart from this well water. I have living water. The water that I give him, I will give him, will become in him a spring or a fountain, an ongoing flow or source of water, moving water. Spring water, water welling up, springing up, bubbling up to the surface, to eternal life. And later in John, Jesus connects this living water very explicitly 
with the Holy Spirit. You want to be close to God? I'm giving you the living water. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit that will exist within you. How's that for being close to God? You want to be close to God? God is coming close to you. Take and drink. The woman says, which mountain? And Jesus says, look, I'll tell you, you know, I'll... If you want me to step into this controversy, I'll very quickly address that. You're working off of what you don't know, and ultimately you are wrong. You've missed the story of how I'm coming through the Jews to bring you close to God and give you living water. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And you need the living water, the Holy Spirit, and I'll give you that. She says, oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. I I guess there's no way to know for sure until the Messiah comes, right? There's no way to clear that up. And Jesus says, yeah, that's me. Jesus was subjected to the shame of our sin and other sin against us. And in doing that, he gives us living water. He gives us the spirit where we are always close to God, regardless of temples or mountains or anything like that. So that was, so we talked about the woman's shame. We talked about that was Jesus' shame and the gospel that he bore for us. Now let's talk about your shame. So we've talked about the woman's shame, Jesus' shame, your shame, your shame from sin and being sinned against. Shame can come in lots of different shapes and sizes, and there's many ways of trying to get rid of it. Like I said in the beginning, we can just try to pretend that the, the rules and the codes and the institutions that cause our shame are wrong. And if we can change or ignore them, that shame will just disappear. But like our culture, we'll be haunted by original sin. We'll be haunted by shame, the sin and the brokenness of the world. Or we can try to mask it. This might look, there's, definitely, there's a bunch of ways we can mask our shame. This might look like addiction. Um, addiction to sexual sin promises satisfaction that will make us whole. But it will leave us empty and ashamed. G.K. Chesterton said that the man knocking on the door of the brothel is knocking for God. Substance abuse can promise shame, escape from shame for a short time, but after sobering up, it will be a reality of, of havoc. Or maybe you try to deal with shame in ways that are much less noticeable. Hiding in your phone, projecting a shame-free wholeness on social media, everything's okay. Escaping to more culturally acceptable things to try to quench that thirst shame that, um, that shame leaves you with or ignore it altogether. In her shame, the woman kept going from guy to guy, thirsty to quench a shame that won't be satisfied by anything other than God. Coming to the well on her walk of shame every day, thirsty. And Jesus says, I've got the water for you. I've got water for you that will ultimately be bought with my blood shed for your sin and your shame, and if you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. Jesus never, like I said, he never comes back to her specific sinful and bro- or broken relationships, and that's because he didn't bring it up to shame her. He brought it up to expose her shame and the thirst that she wasn't even really aware of. Jesus didn't come to shame you from your sin, he came to save you from your sin. And heal your shame. But how does what Jesus did back then do that for you now? And what are you supposed to do from here? Think of what your shame is. What, what, when I said shame, when I brought that up, what went to your mind? Chances are most of you thought of something. 
What's that shame? What's your shame based in? What are you ashamed of? Now take that and let me ask you, what's the worst possible outcome of that shame? What's the worst fear hiding within your shame? The worst fear of your shame, I think on the ultimate level, is that someone would know you fully and expose you in your shame and cast ultimate public judgment on you fully for the result of your shame. And guess what? Wounded, possibly shameful, brothers and sisters. In Jesus, all of what I just said has already happened to you. Jesus has known you in your shame. He knew this woman. He knew all about her past. He knew all about her broken relationships. Jesus has known you in your shame. And in Jesus, your shame has been exposed on the cross. In Jesus, the full and public judgment, what you worry about everybody knowing, that was put on Jesus at the cross and it has already happened to you. He took it. The thing about shame as the residue of sin on the heart is that it clamps itself, it flattens itself into your identity, into your self-perception, who you are. Shame says you are your sin. You are what those people did to you. You are your brokenness. And Jesus says that's impossible because your shame was known and paid for by me on the cross. That can't be you. You're new, you're forgiven, you're washed clean, and you have living water bubbling up inside of your veins, and you are mine. But while we live in this world with sin and brokenness, shame is going to try its best to stick like gooey residue on your heart. But because the worst outcome of your shame has already happened to you in Jesus because your shame was known and exposed and fully judged on the cross and because you now belong to Jesus, you can let go of it. You can, you can really let go of it. It is not a part of your personality. It's not a part of your identity at the deepest level. You can stop hiding. You can stop deflecting. You can stop masking like mold, shame, grows best in the darkness. And you can bring it out into the light. So I want to challenge you this week to talk to somebody. Maybe somebody in this church. I think it'd be great if it was somebody in this church. Talk to somebody about your shame, about that thing that you're thinking about right now. I know that that can sound scary, but your sin, your shame from sin, being sinned against, has been known, exposed, and forgiven in Jesus, and you can tell somebody about it. You can give that away. What sins have been done by you or to you that have felt like a residue on your heart that you can't quite get off? Because church, if we can't be real with each other, if we can't be comfortable being a little uncomfortable, I know that doesn't really make sense, but if we can't be a little comfortable being uncomfortable with each other in revealing our shame, then we're in trouble. If we have a church full of people living in the darkness of shame, doing whatever version of your walk of shame to the well at noon every day is, day after day, instead of living in the activity of that living water, Holy Spirit bubbling up, then if we don't have that, then we're going to bubble up in contentiousness and weariness and bitterness. Go to our website, I think, and the first thing you're going to see is we come as a broken people 
before a glorious and forgiving God. And by God's grace, I've seen that here. I've seen that at work here. But if we don't intentionally foster that and grow in that, into a gospel culture, we're letting people into the parts of our, our heart that we're most ashamed of. If we don't live into that to where it's expected, and that's, that's a normal part of our grace and peace culture, then we run the risk of this all being surface-level fakery. And so I want to challenge you that if, if you're on the other end of that and someone lets you into that place, and they reveal their brokenness, their shame to you, take some cues from Jesus in this conversation. When someone reveals themselves and their shame to you, don't respond with a shocked, disgusted look. Because if you really understand human sinfulness, if you really understand sinfulness and brokenness, even just by knowing yourself, then there isn't much that should shock you. You can ask deep questions, digging deeper into that well of shame. You might know them, hopefully, well enough to ask the go call your husband kind of questions. You might need to point them somewhere else that would be helpful. There's lots of ways of caring for a bunch of different things. This could look a a lot different. It could mean that talking to the therapist might be helpful or going to a group could be helpful in certain situations. There's lots of different ways you can point. But ultimately, the place where I want you to point them should be to the same place that Jesus points the woman to, to Jesus. Now, you aren't Jesus. You aren't all-knowing. You aren't God. And you can't save anyone from their shame. But you can point them outside of themselves. I think, particularly in the evangelical church, we can be such navel casers. We can be such people that are dwelling in brokenness and sin and staying in our heads. And let me tell you, staying in your shame, shaming yourself for feeling shame, is not going to get you out of your shame. You will never shame yourself into freedom. Look at Jesus. Look at what the gospel bought you. Remind yourself, remind others of our new selves. And anytime shame rears its ugly head up, drown that thing back in the living water again. As a sort of uh, kind of spoiler or trailer for George's sermon next week, we're going to see how God flips the shame of the woman at the well, and he uses that very same place of shame to bring in others to Jesus to see and to taste the living water for themselves as well. He uses it. God wants to use that in you. I'm going to end with Revelation 22:17. The spirit and the bride say come. Let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the living water, the water of life without price. Stop going to wells that are not going to satisfy you. Come to the fountain of living water. Let's come to Jesus. Let's pray. God, um, we are people that are prone to shame. We are prone to also hide our shame, to live in it, to dwell in it. And we need you to come and expose it. We need you to come and give us the living water that actually satisfies us and remind us that we are yours, we are new. God, help us in our conversations this week. Help us in our in our hearing when other people are revealing themselves. Give us the grace, the kind of Jesus-like grace that can point to something new, to something better, to living water. 
rather than the wells of shame. Lead us to fountains of living water, God. Amen.